Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we talk seriously about the gospel and what it means for racial reconciliation and justice. Our guest is Joel Hammernick, Executive Director of Sunshine Gospel Ministries on Chicago's South Side. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Joel Hammernick. He's the Executive Director of Sunshine Gospel Ministries and Sunshine Enterprises. These provide youth outreach and mentoring, entrepreneurship training, and service learning and missions programs for students of all ages, including college students. The program is based in neighborhoods on Chicago's South Side, in particular, the neighborhood of Woodlawn, and he's lived on the South Side with his family for over a decade. He's a frequent speaker at the Chicago Fellowship, a weekly ministry to businessmen that meets in the Chicago Loop. Joel Hammernick, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks, David. Great to be with you. For our listeners who are unfamiliar with where you come from and your work, I wonder if you could start out by briefly describing some of the conditions that exist in Southside neighborhoods where you have worked over the last 10 or 15 years. Sure. The neighborhood that we're based in, Woodlawn, is a classic Chicago African-American Southside neighborhood. And it is one of many neighborhoods that's gone through significant evolution over the last 50 or 60 years. And and what's most evident now when you drive through the neighborhood is the mass exodus. So at one time, the neighborhood was about 80,000 people. It's now about 24,000 people. So there's a lot of vacancy and blight. And uh, some of the other stereotypical issues are there that are apparent around violence and the education system struggling, those kinds of things. But there's also a vibrancy to the neighborhood that you can only discover really by spending a lot of time there. And having raised my my family there, I can say that that, uh, there's a lot more good to say about the neighborhood than bad. And so this mass exodus that you talked about, what was the impetus for that? Why did the people leave? Why did it go from 80,000 to Mm 24,000? Well, uh, it helps to give you just a couple seconds of history before that. Uh, Originally, up until the 1950s, Woodlawn was a largely white ethnic neighborhood. And between 1950 and 1960, it went from being about 65,000 white people to being about 80,000 black people. So you had this this exodus of uh, white folks, and that that tied into the great migration of African Americans. So there are a lot of African Americans arriving from the South in the city. They ended up in overcrowded black neighborhoods, and as they were forcibly segregated through a variety of means, eventually the bounds of each of those neighborhoods would sort of break, and the black community would spill into the next neighborhood south. And so in very short order, just time period of about 10 years, uh, Woodlawn was 
went from being one of those neighboring white neighborhoods to being completely African-American. But the long-term impact of overcrowding these neighborhoods, of course, leads to the physical decline of the interior of the neighborhood. So eventually the neighborhood began to suffer from black middle-class flight as the next neighborhoods south became a viable option for the uh, more well-off community members, black community members in Woodlawn to move south. And then it really just spiked in the 1970s, the building of the highways, the removal of jobs largely to the suburbs, the Community Reinvestment Act, which made all of the forcible segregation issues around redlining, banking, real estate practices, those were really all done away with in the early 1970s. And so many, many African-Americans were finally able to get a mortgage and move to the suburbs, and they did. And so that really began the decline of the neighborhood. You began to lose the strong families. You began to lose the business owners. You began to lead, sort of the lead, lose the leading figures. And it correlates then with uh, bringing in, you know, we end up with crack. We end up with handguns. We end up with just a number of things that, that just begin this very difficult spiral uh, that we've, we've, we're past that spiral. We're not in a spiral anymore in Woodlawn by any means. We're, we're sort of on the way back, but it's, but it's been a long and very, very difficult story. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Joel Hammernick. He's the executive director of Sunshine Gospel Ministries. It provides a variety of youth outreach and mentoring programs on Chicago's south side. And so you chose with your family to move to this area. And tell me about that decision. What was that conversation like around the dinner table when you're like, we're going to we're going to move to South Chicago? Yeah, well, it, it it evolved so that by the time I told my wife I thought it was time to move, uh, she was not shocked. But uh, you know, we had we'd both gone to Moody Bible Institute. I'd studied theology. My wife studied Christian education, and had a, a strong sense of sort of Christian calling as we thought about how we navigate the world and steward our lives. And we'd been very, very influenced. The more that I became involved with the ministry, the more I spent time in in black neighborhoods, the more I was influenced by Dr. Martin Luther King and his description of what he called the beloved community, which was really a Christian vision for a community that would work intentionally against issues of oppression and poverty. And that influenced me in a big way. And then I was further influenced in in what I would call a more tactical direction for the beloved community by a pastor from Jackson, Mississippi, who's still alive today, Dr. John Perkins. And Dr. Perkins basically argued that if we're serious about the beloved community, the most important work will be done from within the boundaries of our most challenged places. And so some of us that grew up in places like that, but moved away and got a college education and went on to you know pursue the American dream, need to think about going back. And others of us, like myself, who didn't grow up there, and could, of course, choose to live, you know, pretty much any place, should make an intentional decision to raise our families, to live in these places and to become good neighbors and to love not just our neighbors, but our neighborhoods. And so being a good neighbor in a place like Woodlawn, when you are an outsider and a person who who could leave if you chose to, and mm-hmm. I'm thinking now of kind of James Cone's critique of the, of yes. the good white liberals yep. who want to come in. You made the decision, and you say your wife was pretty much on board and understood mm-hmm. where the decision was coming from. How did your new neighbors mm-hmm. uh, interpret your gesture to move there? Because I could see that they might interpret it generously, or they might say, this is gentrification. This yeah. is Yeah. And so what was that like? Well, since there were no other white people moving in, <laughs> it was not confused as gentrification in the early years. 
and you know, our, our prayer was just that we would find favor in the community and that we would, we would be able to get to know people. And we had a, a bunch of kids. We had five at the time and a couple more came along after that. And, and the block that we initially moved into had 50 children living on that block. And so my children instantly had friends and it, uh, we felt like it was a, a, a gesture of grace that we really received. Now, so, so we've never really had anything else other than a welcoming spirit as a family. I can tell you, however, that when we moved to the organization, we received substantial pushback because of the, the presumption, some of which was perceived and some of which was a fair critique, that we perceived this neighborhood as a place that needed services or we, it, we perceived it as a place that, you know, I don't think we ever felt we were coming to rescue, but we were, we were coming to serve more than we were coming to learn. And we got schooled on that pretty quickly. And how did that schooling take its shape? Like, did someone pull you aside like an elder from the community? Or was it just <laughs> someone getting in your face one day and saying, you, and you can fill in the blank? But, yeah. yeah. Well, it happened in lots of different ways. But the most memorable way was that, that one of our older neighbors, uh, an older lady who's lived in the neighborhood a long time, who's now a dear friend, I should say, but she called me up one day and said, after we'd purchased this building that was a wreck and... We put out a lot of money and we were going to have to put a lot more money and effort in to renovate it, to have a space to operate from. And she called me and asked if I'd meet her at the local police station. And it didn't immediately strike me as a, <laughs> that it was a sort of a setup, but we, we got, because there were very few places to meet people in the neighborhood. And so we met at the police station and she brought along a number of neighbors and she asked me to lay out for these neighbors and a couple of police officers, including the police commander at the time, what we had in mind. And I tried to wax eloquent for a few minutes about our visions to serve young people and, you know, this, that, and the other thing, programs that we'd been running for years, but elsewhere, now we were going to run them here. And uh, she looked at me and she said, are, are you done? <laughs> and I said, um, yes. And she basically proceeded to take pretty much everything that we'd done and interpret it in the, in the worst possible light. And some of it was Honestly, some of it was a fair critique. Some of it was, it was, you know, we had, we had done a hot dog giveaway just to meet people in the community, which we thought was a great idea. Well, we hadn't bothered to ask the local folks who've been there a long time, the, the homeowners. She was one of them. And she said, you know, in one day, you brought all the riffraff back to that corner that we've been trying. We spent the last 10 years trying to get rid of. I just thought, you know... I don't know what to do right now. And, and in that room in that police station, I was, I was the only white person. There were about a dozen African-Americans. And, and I just got this impression that there was a game being played. And I, did, I was the only one in the room who didn't know what the rules were. And um, it's, a, it's an experience that I never want to repeat. But it was a valuable experience. It was, a, it was valuable on multiple levels. One is I, I hadn't taken the time to hear from some key people in the community that I needed to really listen to and not be defensive about being critiqued. But I also have a lot of African-American friends who've been in the exact opposite setting on countless occasions where they were the only black person in the room. And while they, they hadn't up to that point described it to me this way, this idea that I, I was the only one in the room who, who nobody's explained the rules of the game, you know. And so it was it, it was it was just it was so eye opening. And so anyway, I, you know, it, it, it took us about three years to overcome that and to we we now as i said have a great relationship with that woman and virtually every other person in the that was in the room at the time but if you don't know in these communities if you don't really know the story of what's happened if you don't really know the people that are there 
then you're, you know, the language that you might use about valuing relationships is pretty thin. So if you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Joel Hamernick. He's the executive director of Sunshine Gospel Ministries. It provides a variety of youth outreach and mentoring programs on Chicago's South Side. We'll be back in a moment. Looking for signs of hope in the Chicagoland education scene? Bright Promise Fund for Urban Christian Education serves 15 schools in Chicago and nearby suburbs with scholarship funding for students and families in search of quality, faith-based educational options. Visit brightpromisefund.org to learn more about schools where students flourish. Good schools make for good neighborhoods. brightpromisefund.org. That's brightpromisefund.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Joel Hamernick. He's the executive director of Sunshine Gospel Ministries, which provides youth outreach and mentoring, entrepreneurship training, and service learning and missions programs for a variety of students on Chicago's South Side. Well, a couple of times in the conversation so far, you've mentioned Moody Bible Institute. For our listeners who are unfamiliar with what Moody is, what is Moody and how were you trained at Moody? What was the, the ethos that you were trained in? Yeah, so Moody is a, a Bible institute uh, that goes back to the late 1800s. I think it's around 130 years old now, something like that. Started by one of America's early revivalistic evangelists, D.L. Moody. And it remains to this day pretty much a school that's designed to train pastors and missionaries for the most part. And so it's, it's sort of steeped in the gospel of Jesus Christ in a Protestant, sort of broadly evangelical tradition sort of evolved from fundamentalist to, evangel to um, evangelical over the years. Um, and uh, I'm not completely sure where in the current uh, setting of what's happening in the country. It's, it's had a, it, there's a generational shift right now as they're wrestling with things like social justice and things like that. But it's really a place that, that trains practitioners, people who want to go out and do things. So it has never been famous for its grad school or its, you know, extensive theological training as much as it is providing people with a with a sound knowledge of the scripture and the motivation to to proclaim the gospel. Now, you mentioned that Martin Luther King was a real touchstone for you in terms of your own discernment to work on Chicago's South Side. Is Martin Luther King the kind of thinker that you would expect to encounter if you go to Moody? Or were you an anomaly at Moody because this was a strong resonating point for you? Uh, yeah, so he's not the kind of thinker that you would normally think of as associated with Moody per se. What I think that Moody did for me that was helpful was to convince me that the scriptures were important, ought to be taken seriously, and that we ought to do significant things with our lives. And with that basic sort of foundation that was laid, which I still think for me and for my wife was a very good foundation, we went not necessarily within the traditional direction of Moody. That is, we have really wrestled with the context of the black community in the city of Chicago and the implications for our society and really have developed um, somewhat more of a, of a rooted theology in engaging the culture and engaging just, a, I think, a broader notion of what it means to be someone created in the image of God, set in the middle of a city, uh, surrounded with love and hatred, justice and injustice, beauty and ugliness. And and we've really wrestled with what it means to live our lives in, in, in that setting. And, and basically, utterly discontent with the idea of just walling ourselves off to a place of comfort. I just find that completely misaligned with somebody who takes the scripture seriously. 
And it sounds like that at least would be a point where Moody in general would agree with you, that they, they take the scripture seriously. And so they would understand at least you saying, maybe not the focus of the ministry, I, I don't know, but maybe instead saying, but the motivation of the ministry that we should not be motivated by comfort, but instead should be motivated by service towards that which we find of God and in, in the people around us would be a strong, a strong point of agreement. Yeah, I, in some ways that's true. I think that the that the Moody ethic drives people to take the scripture really seriously and, and positions them in this really interesting place where many people do go off into the world, often in places overseas in very, very uncomfortable settings with a drive to proclaim the gospel. But there's a pretty close connection with a broader sense of evangelicalism where you could also be just as content to just spend, you know, a couple of hours in the Bible every day and go to church and kind of focus on your home life. And I do think that there are some very negative developments, the way that that shows up in sort of modern evangelicalism in, in, in America, at least in the older generation, is frankly pretty unhealthy. The younger generation is really pushing on that and really stirring that up right now. But, but it's why I said earlier that I think that there are some points of change or even crisis in some ways, uh, identity crisis for Moody in the middle of that. Is it fair to say that you thought of Lawndale in South Chicago as a mission field at first, or would you put it in different terms? I certainly would have thought that before I worked for the organization. Before, like when I was a student at Moody, I would have thought that. One of my roommates at Moody had what they call, everyone who attends Moody has what they call a PCM, a practical Christian ministry. And it means once a week you have to go out and do, and you get assigned to these ministries all over the city. And many of them are very, very excellent, excellent work that the students get involved with. My roommate had a little brother that he was the big brother to in Cabrini in one of the tower buildings. So he'd walk over and he'd walk up, I think, 13 or 14 floors to visit this young man once a week. And I mean, the prospect of that terrified me at the time. I just thought, you know, I couldn't even imagine doing something like that. I was, you know, from Minnesota recently and didn't know much about the city. And I frankly didn't know any African-American people. I met my first black person in 10th grade. There's one black kid in my high school. I just, you know, it was totally other. So in that setting, in the middle of Moody, I very much would have thought about it that way. And there was no pattern in my life and no relationships in my life that would have interrupted that way of thinking. It was only later... When I, 10 years later, when I had African-American friends my own age that were genuine friends of mine, and we would begin hashing out the world as we saw it and what it meant to get involved and to see the community through their eyes totally changed that sort of, that's the mission field, I'm going to go rescue them. I mean, the black community is basically a Southern Christian culture. You know, it's sort of ludicrous to think you're going to go like tell people about Jesus who've never heard about Jesus in the black community on the south side of Chicago. But I would never have known that, you know, in my early Moody years. So having actual African-American friends changed your perception of South Chicago as a mission field. Did it also change the way that you looked at and read the Bible? Very much. How so? Well, you know, I often tell people that the, the Bible reads very differently when you're sitting on 63rd Street and Martin Luther King Drive than it does sitting in a, you know, a, a, a warm place with a cup of tea in the suburbs of Minnesota or something like that. The, the words around justice and oppression leap off the page of the scripture when you're surrounded by a, a place that has, has visibly suffered from those problems. So I, th I think that it, it changed the way that I understand and how I read the scripture, it also changed me, period. My African-American friends, regardless of where they were from, 
helped me understand the world in in a broader sense, and I think helped me understand God himself in a, in a broader sense than I could have in sort of my narrowly defined, you know, very white, very, very evangelical tradition that I, that I grew up in. You have had these experiences where you have gone in with a certain expectation, and in some cases you have been forcibly schooled out of that interpretation. If, if mm-hmm. your, your example from earlier about going to the police station and having, you know, a conversation with six or eight members of the community and the police chief and everyone else, sort of mm-hmm. reading your intentions in the worst possible way. Yep. Certainly we have scripture that tells us how to act in that situation, mm-hmm. you know, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. Mm-hmm. But we also, let's be honest, we have ego. Mm-hmm. And particularly as two white men, mm-hmm. the entire society that we, we live in is designed to stroke our ego. Mm-hmm. In a moment like that, when you have had your perspectives rearranged, how do you keep your sense of balance? How have you kept your internal compass heading in the gospel direction and not the ego direction? Mm-hmm. Well, I can't say I always handle it well in those moments, but the arc of wading through that over time to me has to be grounded just in the notion of grace and just to be reminded again and again of just how gracious God has been with me. And if I really believe that's true, which I really do, then it needs to be the thing that defines at the end of the day, the way that I listen, the way that I um, try to develop patience, the way that I respond. And marriage is a good school for that stuff too. <laughs> so, I, but I, I think at its root, grace is the underlying virtue and truth, as I see it from the scripture, that, that redefines everything and hopefully creates space in me to be the kind of person who could do that well. I don't, I don't think that it's a instantaneous, you know, sort of wham, bam, now you're a different person. You can just handle all this stuff well. It's a, there, there's a process of growing in grace, but there's a rootedness that, yeah, just it, it, there's at least the capacity so that if I could follow grace in those moments and I can follow grace over time, the grace of Jesus Christ, then I, I think I can withstand criticism. I'd, I'd, I'd take it one step further and say, I think that defensiveness that we all feel in different settings and which is really easy to feel, in racial <laughs> settings like these, I really think defensiveness is rooted either in shame or in arrogance. And when you really root down behind, you know, you want to throw your hands up, you want to say, hold on a second, you want to defend yourself or you want to whatever, like that sense of defensiveness for me is rooted in either shame or arrogance depending on the setting. And the message of the gospel is, uh, a, a direct response to that in a, in, a, in a method of grace, that my shame is not, at the end of the day, my identity, that Jesus Christ has taken that on my behalf. And then there's no room for arrogance if, if that's true. If the first is true, then the arrogance is taken away. And so I, I try to figure out how to live in that. No, I've had Jim Wallace, the founder of Sojourners, as a guest on the program, mm. and, and he has a touchstone scripture. He keeps talking about Matthew 25, mm. and, and that's his mm. that's his real resonating point. I think that even now Sojourners has a ministry called Matthew 25 Ministry or mm. something like that. So I'm wondering, Joel Hammernick, do you have a touchstone passage or book of or verse from scripture that you find is a good centering point for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in the, there's sort of two, one's a specific passage and then the other is a theme that have uh, rooted me. The, the, the initial passage that really sort of wrecked my life in some ways is uh, from Second Corinthians, 
where Paul says that he died so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. And, and, and that reorientation of the purpose of one's life away from one's own ego, away from, this is not about me at the end of the day. I mean, I have a big enough ego to mess that up on a regular basis, but I, I really believe that if we believe that, that Jesus Christ died on our behalf and if we have placed our faith in him, then that equation in which the whole purpose of his death in effect is to reorient my life. To me, that's a starting point. And then, as I've already said, I think the notion of grace. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Joel Hammernick. He's the executive director of Sunshine Gospel Ministries, which provides youth outreach and mentoring on the south side of Chicago. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Today we're speaking with Joel Hammernick, the Executive Director of Sunshine Gospel Ministries. It's a ministry that provides youth outreach and mentoring on Chicago's South Side. Well, let's talk a little bit about Sunshine Gospel Ministries. How was it founded? What was the intention? What does it do? Yeah. So it was started in 1905 by some folks from Moody Church, originally as an outreach to unwed teenage mothers. But it pretty quickly became really a very traditional rescue mission. And it was located on a very famous, now famous location, the, the Rock and Roll McDonald's on Chicago's near north side. It's the Hard Rock Cafe is there now and the Rainforest Cafe. It's a very touristy area. But for most of Chicago's history, this was sort of skid row. And uh, so not only was Sunshine there, but many other rescue missions were there. The city came through in the mid-70s, period they called Urban Renewal tore it all down, displaced everybody, and the organization relocated to Cabrini-Green. And Cabrini-Green for many years was one of America's most notorious public housing communities. It was a place where children outnumbered adults as much as four to one. And, and so it became a youth ministry, a youth outreach. I became the director, well, I joined the staff in 99, became the director in 2001, and another wave of urban renewal, the city announced that they're going to tear down that community. So in 2004, we relocated to the south side to Woodlawn, and we basically started over and um, started as a youth ministry and replicating what we'd been doing in Cabrini and, and have grown not only in the youth work that we do, but in some other strategies that, that you've referred to. And so what are some of the programs that you started out with? And then I want to ask about kind of where you're going and growing now. Sure. So what we were doing in Cabrini was very traditional after-school sort of faith-based outreach. So we'd be doing Bible studies and tutoring and taking kids to camp. And we restarted that on the south side. But in, for the first few years, all we did was work with kids in second through fifth grade. And then after a few years, we added in middle school and then we added in high school. And we do those same kinds of things 
We've just grown not only in capacity, so we have a couple hundred kids in programs. We've added some layers of sophistication to the educational components and the tracking of reading and math literacy rates, attendance in school, these kinds of things. And then really have incorporated some vocational aspects of it as we've as we've wrestled with the implication of the absence of work in our community. We've run a uh, service learning program in parallel with that through the whole time. So we host five or 600 students from around the country, typically for either a weekend or a week at a time, and teach them a lot about the neighborhood and try to better equip them to become involved in the kind of work that we do, often sort of under the rubric of social justice work try to get people to do it somewhat more thoughtfully. And so there's the, the service learning piece is very educational. When those students come, and I'm assuming that this is would be something like the Appalachian Service Project, only on an urban scale. Is that a fair characterization? Correct. That's correct, yep. So my experience with ASP is that students come from means and they come from comfort. That's right. And they come with kind of a savior attitude. That's right. And and how do you disabuse them of that? Yeah, <laughs> we so we, we start... In the, in the process where groups are thinking about coming by spending time with the leaders to find out if the leaders are open to that. And if we have leaders who want to come and serve and they're not interested in learning, we tell them no. And, and so we, we, we know that the strong motivation is that people want to serve. And we don't think that's necessarily a bad motivation, but we do think that it's very misplaced, particularly in its understanding of the context to which they're coming to serve and the value of their service. The service itself is rarely that valuable. And it will never change a community during the week that they're there. And it will never even, to use the language that most people want to use in those kind of short-term mission settings, as they want to use the, we want to go and build relationships. Well, you can't build a real relationship with anybody in, you know, in a week. So we reframe it to help them understand that the value that they bring, as far as the service goes, is that we are there day in and day out, year in and year out permanently. And they can do some things that will leverage our presence. They will help us to be more legitimate by volunteering in the schools and that kind of a thing. And from that standpoint, there is some value in the service and we work hard to find service projects that are genuinely valuable to the community and meaningful. But we emphasize across the board, the process of learning is absolutely far more valuable. It's it's really the reason that the students, that, that they should come. They should come to learn from the community. They should come not just willing to give, but willing to receive. There's a uh, minister in Atlanta who pointed out to me a long time ago that if you say it's better to give than to receive and you keep yourself in the position as the giver, then you are constantly keeping your yourself in the better position in marginalized neighborhoods among oppressed people. That's a dangerous way to get involved. And uh, so we try to upend that. And what's dangerous about that? I mean, I, I can imagine, but for yeah. my listeners, kind of where's the danger in being yep. the giver all the time? The danger is that when you want to help someone who does genuinely need help, hurt people are very easy to hurt. And so when you when you go in with the attitude that you're the giver and they're the receiver, that you're the one with the power, they're the one with the weakness, you're the one with the wisdom or the righteousness or whatever it is, and they're the one without 
you inevitably carry with you a condescending attitude. You inevitably think that you are a better person. You'd probably never say that out loud, but you absolutely convey it to the people that you're doing this, you know, the, doing the outreach to. And so not only does the, does the service and the act of generosity that, that you try to do have limited value in and of itself, it actually undermines the person that you're trying to reach out to. And so if, if you don't have a mechanism, an intermediary, some method of really understanding that person, really hearing from them, being willing to receive that, that kind of a disposition, to quote a friend of mine, you will never minister effectively to anybody that you think less of. And people see that. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week in our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Joel Hamernick. He's the executive director of Sunshine Gospel Ministries here in Chicago. Sunshine Gospel Ministries provides youth outreach and mentoring and entrepreneurship training across Chicago's South Side. Now, some of my listeners are on the very left end of the scale, and some mm-hmm. of my listeners are on the very right end of the scale, conservative and liberal. Mm-hmm. And when I talk to my more conservative friends, I oftentimes hear a rhetoric of, well, welfare is bad because it undermines the personal, individual, moral character. Mm-hmm. It puts people in a needy position. Mm-hmm. When I heard you give your answer, I didn't quite hear that critique. Mm-hmm. But I, I want to at least put that critique out there because some of my listeners will be hearing that and thinking that. Uh, at what point do you agree with that critique? And at what point from your experience do you disagree with that kind of critique of being in a welfare mm-hmm. position? Mm-hmm. So I would be a very careful uh, critic of of welfare, but I would just point out this to those who are. If you can see damage that's done by welfare, ironically, most people who are critics are also very in favor of short-term missions and and aid overseas. And you should be a critic of all three of those if you're going to be a critic of one of them. Ironically, we become arch critics of welfare, and then we, with our philanthropy and with our charitable involvement and even with our mission activity, we do exactly the same thing. So I think that you, first of all, just have to establish the, the idea that we ought to look for consistency and thoughtfulness. Any giving within the context of, of people who are marginalized, oppressed, or poor that is not done with a real relationship is, can't be done well. And, and, and so, you know, looking for relationships that are close, you're going to have to help me with this. There, there's the Catholic notion of being, to do it well, you've got to be close. It's, oh, well, the one that I think of is subsidiarity. Subsidiarity, that's what yeah. I was looking for. Yep. The principle of subsidiarity, you know, that you, and I don't, I don't profess to understand the uh, full Catholic implications of that, but the principle that you've got to be close to really understand what's going on is, is just absolutely critical. And to be close, it takes extensive time. You, you cannot do that quickly. And so, you know, I think, I think that in general is, is really sort of uh, a, f- a first principle for thinking about giving well. So I think you've got to be close. I think you have to have a long-term view on it. I think you typically need intermediaries. You need to do it in the context of community to do it well. And I, you know, the subject of welfare as a whole, I would be very cautious about critiquing because even there, unless I know someone who's lived on welfare, grown up on welfare, feeding their child on welfare, unless I know them and I love them, and I'm convinced that out of that love for that person that I know, do I think that that system ought to change? That's the only context in which I would I would feel uh, free to, to provide a, a criticism of it. 
Now, Sunshine Gospel Ministries started out and it has grown, and you said it has grown in terms of the communities that it serves, first of all, a youth community and then a middle school community and now a high school community. You also have added some college bridge builders communities Mm -hmm. work, but then I'm also aware that there's a whole new focus that Sunshine Gospel Ministries is taking on in the last couple of years as well. Is, is mm-hmm. that correct? Yeah, uh, particularly around entrepreneurship. And this will actually tie into the last point. Let me back up and say this. We began wrestling with this, this idea that the consequence of the absence of work in our neighborhood correlates with the presence of violence. And so we began wrestling with both sides of that equation. What's the nature of the violence? Who's involved? What are the best ways to respond to it? And then on the side of work, what's the nature of work? How, what could we as a stakeholder in the community do to cultivate that work? And it really came back to, again, sort of thinking about how do we go into places like this and help people? And our fundamental belief, if we say that we believe people are created in the image of God, then we must say that we believe that they have gifts and that those gifts are the thing that ought to be cultivated more than anything else. That those gifts of beauty, of creativity, of production in that sense co-cultivators of the creation, we, we ought to be fanning that flame. And so we started our entrepreneurship work, and it's really developed to the point where what we do is we identify entrepreneurial people in disenfranchised neighbors throughout the city. We affirm them and their work. Most of it's done in a sort of off-the-books economy or it's invisible to larger society. And, and then we equip them with basic business skills, record-keeping, bookkeeping, marketing, legal, insurance, these kinds of things. We help them find customers. We help them eventually get access to capital. And, and that work is growing rapidly. It's very, very exciting. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Joel Hammernick. He's the executive director of Sunshine Gospel Ministries, which provides youth outreach and mentoring and entrepreneurship training and uh, and service learning mis- and missions programs for college students and youth across Chicago's South Side. We'll be back in a moment. So for those of you that are longtime listeners to Things Not Seen, you may be aware that I do another show called The Francis Effect with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan priest. Every couple of weeks, he and I get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Now, Dan, why should I be talking to you? Who are you? Who am I? I'm a Franciscan friar, a Roman Catholic priest, and a professor of theology here in Chicago. And that's a good question. I have no idea why you should be talking with me. But if people are interested in what a conversation between you, the otherwise uh, respectable host of Things Not Seen, and me, the not-so-respectable Roman Catholic priest and theologian, I think they should tune in. Yeah, they should definitely tune in. So that's The Francis Effect, and you can find it at francisfxpod.com. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week in our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Joel Hammernick. He's the executive director of Sunshine Gospel Ministries here in Chicago. Sunshine Gospel Ministries provides youth outreach and mentoring and entrepreneurship training across Chicago's South Side. Where have you specifically seen the Holy Spirit moving in your ministry? And what is the role of prayer in your ministry? Yeah, you know, as as a guy with a Presbyterian background, you know, we, we have a really hard time figuring that out. That's another area in which I think that the influence of my black brothers and sisters has been quite helpful. I have a a guy on my staff who just every day will sort of pause and help me to see where the spirit's moving. You know, we, I I would say probably the most fundamental way is in sustaining um, my family and my staff through 
tragedy through deep waters, the work of wading through the racial divide, the work of wading through the consequences of poverty, the work of staying at it with kids who are growing up in really difficult circumstances. We, we buried three young men that we know and love this year. And when my African-American youth staff who are working with younger kids look at those kids in the casket and then they look at the younger kids in the classroom and then they look at their paycheck, <laughs> which is not impressive. It's like, why do you stay? Why would you stay? Because if this is like a sense of adventure, the, the adventure has gone. If it's, a, if it's like a joy ride or something to make it like none of that works. And so I'm convinced that it is the spirit of God that anchors us in the truth of who he is and who we are that calls us and sustains us in the work. And I see that because I just, I, I often, I mean, I certainly on occasion wonder why I'm doing what I'm doing. I, I think it's a natural question to ask at times. And yet I do personally have a very strong sense of calling. So it's not, not, I'm not wavering in that sense as much as wondering. But I'm genuinely in awe of my staff, staff that take that time to get to know those kids. Well, let me say, first of all, just for the losses that you and your community have sustained, I, my deepest sympathies and condolences, and I'm Thank sorry. You. Thank you. Another person who's been associated with Moody here in Chicago is a fellow who goes by the name of Doc Feuder. Mm. And one of the things that I know about Doc is that he has leveraged his position at Moody to create this ministry where neighborhoods are praying for neighborhoods. And he gets yeah. people together to basically pray, you know, literally almost neighborhood by neighborhood here in the Chicago area. Mm. And so he's a person who's put his chips in the prayer basket. Yeah. And so as a person who also comes out of, of the Moody experience, that makes me want to ask you, mm -hmm. in addition to seeing the Holy Spirit moving, what is the role of prayer in mm -hmm. Sunshine Gospel Ministries? Always regarded as part of the work itself. It's easy to see it as sort of a, a christening or a blessing that happens at the beginning or the end. I, I do quite literally think that it's part of the work. I think within, you know, our, our staff and organization, we have seasons that are stronger and seasons that are weaker. We have people that are stronger, people that are weaker. Certainly we have a handful that are very, very gifted like, um, at, at just remaining uh, in prayer. I just honestly, given how difficult this past year has been with these with these three deaths and, and some other things that's happened, for me, it's been a season where I just need other people to pray. My prayer is pretty much help me, Jesus, and it doesn't get much more sophisticated than that. And I, I'm thankful that I think as I read the scripture, Jesus testifies on my behalf and the Spirit interprets for me. And, I, and, and so I don't I think that the consistency and the earnestness is, is what's needed more than the sophistication or knowing exactly what to ask for. And I'm personally very, very content to rest in, in the, on the, um, sort of on the wings of the prayers of other people on our behalf. I'm very grateful for that. And, and I think that prayer is, at the end of the day, you know, people will use the phrase, uh, prayer works. And I actually don't think that's true. I think God works. I just think God works through prayer. <laughs> As we come towards the conclusion of the interview, what I often ask my guests is a pair of questions. The first is what frustrates you and the other is what gives you hope. And so I always like to preface that because sometimes people hear the frustration question and they think it's going to end on that. And I want to say we're going to get to the hope for <laughs> it. But, but first of all, as you've been doing this work now for almost 15 years or more than 15 years? Yeah, more since, yeah, uh, about 19 now. What is it over that time 
I'm sure that you've had individual frustrations, but what is it right now that continues to frustrate you? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I'm a visionary, so I tend to be sort of looking at what's upcoming and what's next. I have found great frustration in these past few years without having a better answer to the nature of the violence. Done a lot of homework on it, a lot of thought, spoken with a lot of people. And a part of that is I find it unconscionable that we as a society are sort of okay with the level of violence. In the city of Chicago, uh, more than 3,000 people uh, were shot last year. Uh, we had about 680 deaths, something like that. But more than 3,000 were shot. And for every time in the city of Chicago a, a projectile, a bullet, passes through human flesh, only 2% of the time is there significant legal consequence. So, so we have a 98% impunity rate on shooting someone in the city of Chicago. And that's bizarre. And, and I am unbelievably frustrated because I, I do think that we have corruption issues in the city. I do think we have these, these larger sophisticated problems and, and, and questions that are they're deeply entrenched. And as much as I can serve these kids and we can serve them and try to steer them in different directions, we, we have some major, major problems that we seem to be okay as a society with. And I find that just un, un, unpalatable. And so then to turn that around, I mean, after more than 15 years of this work, what is it that continues to give you hope? Well, I can just go back to the grace of God. I, I thoroughly enjoy seeing on a daily basis my staff and my neighbors. And I do find great beauty in the neighborhood, even in, in places that are pretty broken from the outside. And so there's a deep joy for me that is there regardless of that. You know, obviously my family means a lot to me and I've, I've got uh, four different relatives that are now laboring aside uh, in, in the ministry in various capacities that I am just so delighted to see. And I, and I have a strong sense of hope that in the next generation, uh, which will be much, much better than ours at understanding how the grace of God is unfolded in diverse settings. And I think is much more concerned about justice and understanding the, 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 the close tie to righteousness, which I, I grew up hearing lots about righteousness and not at all really about justice. But these are literally two sides of the same concept and, and uh, cannot be distinguished. And I'm, I'm very, very hopeful that this next generation has a, has a solid handle on that. Well, Joel Hammernick, I've been wanting to have this conversation for a long time. I'm so thankful that you had some time to sit down with us. Thank you very much. Thanks, David. Great to be with you. We've been speaking today with Joel Hammernick. He is the executive director of Sunshine Gospel Ministries, which provides youth outreach and mentoring, entrepreneurship training, service learning, and missions programs for students of a variety of ages on Chicago's South Side. He's lived on the South Side with his family for over a decade, and he's also a frequent speaker at the Chicago Fellowship, a weekly ministry to businessmen that meets in Chicago's Loop. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kijan made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. 
That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Not Seen Radio. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's Facebook.com slash Things Not Seen Radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.